Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 82, The Games Come to an End. Finally came the last day of the track and field events on August 9th, a Sunday. And of the upcoming events, those in the stands looked forward to Der Klassiker Lauf, the classic race, the marathon. The Germans, like so many Europeans, saw this event as tying them directly to ancient Greece and demonstrated better than any other event which country had an athlete of world-class stamina and strength. The race would begin at 3 p.m. and take some time to complete, yet the crowds in the stadium and those listening in on the radio would have other events to entertain them in between. It was estimated that some one million people would be strung out along the race course. At exactly 3 p.m., the 56 runners took off, once around the track, before heading out through the Grunwald and two sections of western Berlin. Before the race got underway, the sun finally decided to make an appearance, which caused most of the runners to don hats. Also, before the race commenced, Hitler arrived with many officials from the Reich government. One such was Field Marshal von Mackensen of the Death Heads Hussars. His presence, or at least his uniform, was an inappropriate gesture by the Third Reich. But, as it was the last day, and so far everything had gone smoothly, their true nature came out from hiding. As the buzz was all about the marathon, the crowd's favorite was Argentinian Juan Carlos Zabala. Not only had he set a new Olympic record previously, but had, besides, been seen running around the streets of Berlin training for the last few months. Yet some spectators threw out the name Kaite Sun, who was running for Japan. In truth, Kaite was from Korea, but that country was currently a part of the greater Japanese empire, something the mostly German crowd had no trouble understanding. Then, of course, there were the Finnish runners, which every German watching assumed were either superhuman runners or racing tacticians along the lines of their own Bismarck. As the race got underway, the Argentinian Zabala dashed out in front to take the lead. This he held as he circled the track and made his way out of the stadium. Yet those locals who saw him running for the last few weeks recognized that his current pace was faster than what he normally ran. Most shook their heads with worried expressions, guessing there was no way he could keep that pace up for long. But at the halfway point, Zabala was still in the lead, having gained a minute and a half on him the next runner, Diaz of Portugal. Behind him was the Korean running for Japan, Son, and Britain's Ernest Harper from Yorkshire. Behind them were the three Finns. And as each group of runners or runner appeared calm, everyone assumed they all had a plan in place. As that race continued, the crowd in the stadium focused on the next event, the women's 4x100 relay. One of the reasons Hitler was in his box was because he had been told that Germany's team had a strong chance of taking the gold. In fact, in one of the qualifying heats, the German ladies set a new world's record. The crowd was delirious, and even Hitler seemed about to be carried away. However, when it came to the final, the hopeful host team found themselves in lane four. Next to them were their main arrivals the Americans, in lane three. But the German runners were confident as the people cheered themselves into hysterics. When the race got underway, the first German runner, Emmy Albus, seemed to justify all the cheers as she gained on all of the other three runners, then smoothly handed the baton over to Kathy Krauss. Krauss held the advantage earned by Albus, but could not add to it. Yet, Again, the exchange from Krauss to Marie Dollinger was peerless, with Dollinger determined to give the team's final runner, Ilsa Dorfelt, enough of a lead to take the victory 
from the determined Americans. And Dollinger did her job well. By the time Dorfeld got the baton, she had a lead of 10 meters on the American Hellcat, Helen Stevens. By now, everyone, including Hitler, were on their feet, screaming, clapping, and jumping up and down. But then, Chance stepped in. Dorfeld grabbed the baton and could almost feel Stevens behind her. And with her speed, the German did not have much of a chance. So Dortfeld gave it her all just as soon as she touched the baton, which was a mistake. Not having a firm grip, she found herself almost dropping the tube, which caused her to slow up to make sure it was secure. Only then did she pour back on the speed. But by then, it was too late. The American had eaten up the distance between them and was now pulling ahead. As the American crossed the line first, the groans rose from the crowd. Hitler himself sat down with a thump, a video clip that has been seen many times over the years. As for Dorfeld, she started crying the moment her race was over. But the question everyone was asking was, even with her 10-meter lead, could she have still stayed ahead of Helen Stevens? if the exchange had been smooth. Most locals did not think so, but they would have loved a chance to find out. Even Hitler later tried to calm the still-crying young runner, but clearly only time would be able to set her to rights. For the record, the Germans' previous heat, when they set a new world's record, had been a half-second faster than the Americans' final time. So, who really knows how the race would have ended? It was now time for the men's 4x400 relay. The British Olympic Committee had put all their hopes into this event, as all four runners were world-class. Godfrey Rampling was the team's fastest, while Frederick Wolfe was its relative slowest. The other two, Bill Roberts and Godfrey Brown, were solid runners and not expected to lose a step during their parts. The idea was for Wolf, the slowest runner, to run first, but then for Rampling, the rabbit, to go after him, to make up for any lost time, and that part of the plan worked out. By the time Wolf was done, he was eight meters behind the Canadian Limon and three meters behind Cagle of the United States. But Rampling surged during his run and was able to pass the second Canadian runner as well as the second American runner, giving his team a three-yard lead. And as expected, the other two solid British runners held their own, allowing Great Britain to bring home the gold. Their final time was eight-tenths of a second behind the world record. The U.S. came in second, the Germans third. When the relay was over, the loudspeakers got back to the marathon. Just over the halfway mark, Zambala of Argentina still held the lead, but it was now down to just over a minute, with Son and Harper still trailing together. But when the chorus was back on cement, with the heat bouncing off of it, making the strain that much greater, Son of Japan chose this moment to pull away from Harper and pursue Zambala. Yet Harper, with much longer legs, was determined not to be left behind. So, as a couple, they started closing in on the leader. It took a while, considering Zambala's lead, but by the 28-kilometer mark, all three men were neck and neck. The Argentinian was dismayed by these events, probably hoping that the other racers would cripple themselves in trying to catch up with him, which would allow him to slow down during the last part of the race. But that strategy had not worked. There was no backup plan. For about 100 meters, Zambala ran with the other two, but just couldn't do it anymore. He slowed down and then some more. After a few more kilometers, Zambala stopped running altogether and sank to the ground. By this time, the Finnish runners had figured out that they had miscalculated. They had held themselves in reserve for too long and did not anticipate the pace set by Zimbala. 
They collectively kicked into a higher gear, but were simply too far back to threaten the leaders. But then Diaz of Portugal pulled to the side and collapsed. Now third place was going to be between one of the Finns and another Japanese runner, Soru Nan. As the runners near the stadium, Son decided to make his move. Somehow going into another gear, he pulled away from Harper, who tried to catch up. But as much as his long legs covered the ground, Son still managed to increase the distance between them. As he entered the stadium, the crowd rose to its feet, cheering. Motivated by the energy, Son somehow again increased his pace and practically sprinted the last 200 meters to take the gold. The Korean had just set a new Olympic record of 2 hours, 29 minutes, and 19 seconds. As the crowd started to settle itself down, Harper entered the arena, so the crowd, cheering him on, rose to their feet again. Then came Nan, who tried to make a race out of it for the silver, but Harper's lead was too big, the remaining distance too short. During the award ceremony, Sun extolled the crowd to listen, as he tried to explain that he was Korean, that this victory was for his country, not Japan. But this meant little to the Westerners. So the gold medal was logged in for Japan, which pleased Hitler, as he was attempting to woo that country to help form threatening bookends around Soviet Russia. And that was it for the prestigious track and field events. As is normally the case, due to familiarity and having the home crowd behind them, Germany walked away with the most gold medals, 33. The United States came in second with 24. Italy, 8. Finland and France, both 7. Hungary, 10. Sweden, Japan, and the Netherlands, each six. Great Britain and Austria, four medals. Czechoslovakia, three medals. But that country had a more serious problem before them in the future. As much as can be known, there was no cheating at the 1936 Games. Though there were mix-ups, confusion, and miscommunications. But if there was any sleight of hand and there most certainly was. It was perpetuated by the Nazi officials over the various Olympic committees of the world, and in particular, those Olympic officials that attended the Games. Because from the moment they landed, they were either at or on their way to a party, dinner, or luncheon of some kind. Indeed, they saw little except for whatever dinner table they were at and what the chef had prepared. Of course, Hermann Goering outdid everyone and everything, as the guests were enjoying a lavish meal hosted by himself and his wife. Lights suddenly came on to illuminate the Berlin Ballet Company, who were performing on the lawn. When that was done, giant screens, no one saw how they got into place, were pulled back during the ballet performance to expose a fair which included many merry-go-rounds, shooting galleries, and much alcohol besides. As for Hitler himself, he knew very few non-Germans, and failed most times, but not every time, when he tried to impress some of the visitors. The sincere part he attempted to play was that of someone who admired Britain greatly and strove night and day to bring the two dominant countries together. Between them, they could solve any problem that arose in or around Europe and had the muscle, which is probably where Hitler went wrong, to back up any decision. But pouring gas on the petering flame that was Hitler's attempt to charm was Ribbentrop's attempt to charm and disarm. The former champagne salesman was promoted during the games, as the German Chancellery and Foreign Office declared that he would be replacing the recently deceased ambassador in London, Leopold von Hoesch. This called for the new ambassador to throw his own party, which was impressive, with his pool filled with water roses and constantly flowing 
Champagne. The party, it was hailed a success, went into the small hours of the morning. Yet his success was limited to the dinner, dancing, drinking, and small talk. When Ribbentrop set out on his first goal to charm and persuade Visitart, the permanent undersecretary of state for foreign affairs, that Germany was not a threat to Britain, the champagne salesman fell flat. No matter how he approached the subject, Visitart remained noncommittal. History now knows that Ribbentrop was dense, obtuse, and unwilling, or unable, to see any side of the situation besides his own. This never changed throughout his life. Eventually put to death by the Allies, his autobiography claimed that Hitler was not the cause of the war, but rather Hitler's policies were the result of Visitart's policies of 1936. Clearly, Ribbentrop never got over not being able to get one over on the Britain. And now for a strange, true story that sadly did not help the 30-odd million people that died during World War II. As Visitart was a British official, Hitler felt that he still had to give the man an Olympic medal, though he ignored Ribbentrop's political advances. Hitler had also signed the tag that came with the medal. Before too long, Lady Visitart showed the medal to an Hungarian graphologist, someone who analyzes the physical characteristics and patterns of handwriting, purporting to be able to identify the writer's psychological state at the time of the writing, and evaluates personality characteristics, though this is considered a pseudoscience. As the signature was almost unreadable, the man did not know who it was when he said, One day, the man who wrote this will commit suicide. As the Germans held their last Olympic party, which went off perfectly, they ruined many a guest's happiness with their fireworks display. Such was the ferocity and volume of the explosions. Cannon shot were mixed in with the fireworks. Almost everyone was reminded of the Great War and noted the might of the German land army. The mood soured as this went on for 30 minutes, but afterwards the champagne helped bring the party to a more positive end. Of course, there had been other events besides the track and field. The 16,000-seat swimming complex near the main stadium was normally packed, and the largely German crowd cheered loudest for their own swimmers first, and then for the other Europeans second. Yet, on the whole, the crowd was disappointed, as the events were dominated by the Americans and the Japanese. Better for the Germans were the gymnastics, housed in a 25,000-seat stadium near the track stadium and swimming area. The local team took the gold in the men's individual combined exercises, the parallel bars and the pummeled horse. The German ladies did the same, in the combined exercises. Meanwhile, at Kiel, the Olympic yachting was being held. However, the events would be replete with the judges being challenged, and many of those challenges later upheld. As Kiel was Germany's main naval base, the Nazi party also used these games to espouse the idea of peace between themselves and Britain. Inviting the British cruiser HMS Neptune to the naval base, their English cousins were returning the bell of the German battlecruiser Hindenburg, itself scuttled at Scapa Flow in 1919. At the appointed moment, the four British sailors guarding the bell were replaced by four German counterparts. British Captain Bedford said that he hoped this returning would be seen as a gesture of the friendship that existed between the two navies. Admiral Rader commented that it was only ill fate that made the two navies opponents during the Great War. But it would be the football games, soccer for us Americans, that would turn out the exact opposite of how many thought they should have gone. Britain, who shared the game with the rest of the world, 
were the heavy favorites. But they barely survived the first round when they took on China. Clearly, Britain's idea, this was the first time they had tried this, in attending with an assembled team of English, Scottish, and Welsh players who were given no time to work out together, was not the dream team all north of the English Channel thought it would be. Over the next few rounds, Britain was pushed out, losing to Poland 4-5. to five. The remaining teams went on, only after a series of fans rushed out onto the pitch with the intention of hobbling some of the other team's players. These were mostly the fans of Peru. As the non-players were cleared from the pitch, the game got on, with Peru beating Austria 4-2. But in the final, Italy took the gold by beating Austria 2-1. Yet Britain got back some of their own when the Indian team destroyed everyone, only allowing one score against them in the hockey event. Indeed, only in the final, against Germany, did the Indian team give up a single score, which upset and angered them. The score of that final was 8-1. to one. As most of the Indian players were obviously dark-skinned, there might have been some rough treatment, or at least a lack of support, from the home crowd. But, as many Nazi officials stressed to all, the Indians were of Aryan descent, hence they were seen as blood brothers, and to the Nazis, blood tells. Of the Nazis' numerous political successes during the games, none was more shocking than when one of the South African boxers, Robbie Liebbrandt, gave in to the lavish treatment afforded to him. Returning to Germany after the games, Liebbrandt decided to stay and was instructed in sabotage and espionage. During the war, he would be taken back to South Africa via submarine and dropped off with a small assault force. Using his knowledge of the land, Liebbrand's team destroyed bridges and rail lines, but he was eventually captured and put on trial. Shouting how Hitler, while being questioned, sealed his doom. Liebbrand was sentenced to death, but Prime Minister Smoots commuted the sentence. At the closing ceremony, the flags of the nations were lined up and taken by Hitler's box. As each one came abreast, the flag was dipped to thank the host. Then Bellier Latour, president of the IOC, thanked the athletes and supporting nations and invited the youth of the world to come together again four years from now, in Tokyo. But that would not be. Then the Olympic flag was lowered and given into the custody of the mayor of Berlin, should it be needed again sometime in the future. As it was now dark, all the lights but the Olympic torch were put out. Then the Olympic bell began to ring. Slowly, the flame grew smaller and smaller then disappeared before everyone. Just then, a voice called out through the loudspeakers. I summon the youth of the world to Tokyo. The 1936 Olympic Games were concluded. But as the crowd knew Hitler was in the stadium, they assumed he would give a speech, so started shouting, Heil Hitler, which grew in intensity. But being a good showman and Hitler was that, knew to leave the crowd always wanting more, so no speech was given. Then the anthem Deutschland über alles was struck up for the umpteenth time. During the games, the men broke 17 Olympic and 5 world records, the ladies 5 Olympic records, stunning those who thought the 1932 games in Los Angeles had demonstrated the best of human athleticism. And though the American Glenn Morris had been chosen as the outstanding athlete, for the majority of the citizens, they believed that title should have gone to Jesse Owens. He had run or jumped 14 times and broke 11 Olympic records. He was simply 
to the vast majority of the German spectators, the best the planet had to offer in terms of athletics. Yet the rest of the Owen story was not a meteoric rise. Because of the coming war, Owens, nor anyone else, would compete in the 1940 Games in Tokyo, nor the London Games of 1944, where, no doubt, Owens would have probably gone on to shatter more records, some of them now belonging to him. As expected, everyone wanted to sign the now-famous black athlete to lucrative contracts, and yet, for a variety of reasons, Penn was never put to paper. Owens never achieved a financial success to rival his athletic one. Oh, he ran for spectators, in between baseball games and exhibition games, and the people always enjoyed seeing him run, but the pay never matched their enthusiasm. Owens would go on to do much good for athletics, traveling far and wide, all the way to India, to encourage children, certainly poor children, to train and use those skills to better their circumstances. Owens died in March of 1980 of cancer. He was 66 years old. As for the German people who watched him achieve greatness that summer of 1936, they would remember him always and fondly. In 1984, the road to the Olympic Stadium was renamed Jesse Owens Strasse. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 83, As Goes Malta, So Goes the Empire. Though the British started out well enough in North Africa during Operation Compass, they were soon checked by Rommel, or rather, had checked themselves, contrary to General O'Connor's wishes, the commander during Compass, by diverting men and material to Greece. Then Rommel showed up. But that was in the past. Rommel had pushed the Commonwealth forces back, had himself been pushed back, and was now attempting another offensive. Yet, however this played out, Whoever won, it was apparent to both sides now that victory came down to supplies. Which brought the focus of both sides to Malta, currently in British hands. In essence, as goes Malta, so goes North Africa. As goes North Africa, so goes Egypt, i.e. Alexandria, Cairo, and the Suez Canal. As goes Egypt, so goes the Middle East. And from there, what? India, that part of Asia in general, who knows? But the British most certainly did not want to be put in a position to even think about that question. Which brings us back to Malta. Prime Minister Churchill put it more succinctly with this. The loss of Malta would be a disaster of the first magnitude for the British Empire and would be its own death knell in the long run for the Nile Valley. This he told to the Admiralty. Sadly for the Italians, from the moment Mussolini declared war on the Allies on June 10, 1940, not only were they not prepared, Il Duce had not warned anyone to prepare, but their engagements within the Mediterranean during 1940 and 41 showed that the Regina Marina was unable to handle their British counterparts. Only the German Luftwaffe and U-boats achieved any substantial success in inflicting casualties and loss upon those making their way to Malta or Alexandria. Thus the war over Malta during 41 and 42, whether it would remain a viable substation and launching platform for the British Royal Navy and Air Force, or be starved into submitting to the Axis, would chiefly be betwixt these two proud and competent militaries. But every story has to start at the beginning. By the time the Battle of Britain was well underway in late 1940, the British Army and Air Force strongly felt that any attempt to retain Malta, just 30 minutes flying time from many Italian airstrips, was impossible. 
Moreover, any attempt would just drain vital resources from the defense of the home island at this critical period. As for the Royal Navy, they believed otherwise. Clearly, Hitler was either trying to force London to submit or was paving the way for invasion, which left Italy free to seek its own goal of expanding the Italian Empire, namely in North Africa, which in time would mean Egypt. Let the dashing pilots of the RAF safeguard the English Channel. It would be the Royal Navy's job to make sure aspects further afield of the empire would not fall into Italian hands, the greatest asset being the oil of the Middle East. While it's true that the current defensive position of Malta in 1940 was almost non-existent, if the island could be held, then there went any addition to Mussolini's new Roman Empire. A viable Malta, helping to resupply the defenses of North Africa and Egypt, would see to that. And fortunately for the Royal Navy, Churchill agreed with them right out of the gate, and did so with his usual stubbornness, which would leave the Italians to find out, even before 1941 was over, just how little of their supplies could get through to North Africa, unless loaded onto warships. Just months after Operation Compass was over, when Lieutenant General Richard O'Connor's forces drove the Italians back to Agilia between Benghazi and Tripoli, in February 1941, the Italians were still lamenting their inability to resupply Libya. On November 9, 1941, Foreign Minister Count Ciano wrote in his diary, Since September, we have given up trying to get convoys through to Libya. Every attempt has been costly, and the losses suffered by our merchant marine have reached such proportions as to discourage any further experiments. Tonight we tried again. Libya needs materials, and more every day. A convoy of seven ships left accompanied by two 10,000-ton cruisers and ten destroyers, because it was known that at Malta the British had two battleships, intended to act as wolves among the sheep. An engagement occurred, the results of which were inexplicable. All and I mean all our ships were sunk, and one or maybe two or three destroyers. The British returned to base, having slaughtered us. Clearly, German forces were needed if the Italians were going to hold on to their North African possessions. But at the time, November of 1941, Hitler was obsessed with reaching Moscow and subduing Leningrad. But even he eventually came round. Helping the Italian cause, i.e. plea, was Grand Admiral Raider. He had, from the beginning, argued for a strong German presence in the Mediterranean. His sales pitch to Hitler now was, Mein Herr, you are almost at the Russian capital, and forces further south are doing equally well. 1942 could see a joining up of Army Group South and those that would be in Egypt if you let us go to Egypt. Obviously, we will need the Italians' help, but for now, they are practically of no use, as the British will not allow them to reinforce Libya. We should send air and naval units to subdue Malta. Then we will take the island and thus do to the British what they have been doing to the Italians. We will cut off their supplies and push our way east to Egypt, and then beyond. But Hitler had not been interested in such operations. For one, his knockout blow against communist Russia was only weeks away, and two, he was not a naval man, seeing the possibilities of controlling the Mediterranean and what that would mean. But as November of 41 turned into December, and the German troops were not yet investing Moscow proper, his vision pulled back, as he was wont to do when bored. One of Hitler's main selling points, to himself, in launching an attack against Britain, was to give Stalin pause, to take his hope away of an ally 
when Hitler attacked Russia, it was with the idea to take away Britain's hope of an ally, as it would never be strong enough alone to storm Europe proper. Now he had come full circle, by agreeing with Raider to invade North Africa, take Malta and the Middle East, to not only hurt Britain, but to inflict greater damage on the still stubborn Russia, thus removing Britain's last meaningful ally. How a dictator's head must work. Either way, Hitler soon issued Directive 38 on November 17, 1941. He would withdraw an entire air corps from the Russian snows and send them to Sicily. They would be relieving the embattered Fliegelkorps 10, who would then go to Greece. Thus, it was Fliegelkorps 2, commanded by Bruno Loser, that would leave the harsh snows of Russia and make for the sunny climes of the Mediterranean. But to give this enterprise new emphasis, Hitler put in charge of all German forces in the area Field Marshal Kesselring, now Commander-in-Chief, South. But like Churchill, who couldn't help out sending a directive without loading it down with too much detail, thus strangling whatever commander, Hitler pointed out the objectives that he wanted covered in detail. 1. To secure the mastery of the air and sea in the central Mediterranean area in order to secure sea communications with Cyrenaica and Libya, and in particular to keep Malta in subjugation. 2. To help the Axis land forces in their final drive on Egypt. 3. To operate with Axis naval forces in closing the Mediterranean to British sea traffic. And, of course, though not spelled out in the directive, was the weakening of, and then occupation of, Malta. But, as ever, there were politics involved. The Italians had not only been beaten back by the Commonwealth forces, but they were now being commanded by Rommel, a German. So, to ease Mussolini's already banged-up pride, Kesselring was nominally put under the command of Il Duce himself, which meant that when Kesselring wanted to engage the enemy using combined Axis naval units, the German Navy, specifically Admiral Weichold, and the Italian High Command had to be consulted. By early 1942, the pieces of Kesselring's forces were almost in place. This meant some 2,000 frontline aircraft were now his, scattered throughout the Mediterranean, in Sicily, Greece, and Crete. This would allow him to project power throughout the area, a vital necessity. And yet, as Kesselring was coming to know his new theater of operations, he quickly picked up on the as-yet-still-dominant British position, as touching planes but mostly naval vessels. So, as he saw it, until he could bring in more planes, his first duty was to protect the access supply line. Only when stronger could he begin to smoke out the hornet's nest. By April of 1942, Kesselring felt strong enough to seriously take the fight to the enemy, and he agreed that Malta had to come under the Axis sway soon. First, as drawn up by the German Chief of Command, Air Marshal Dijkman, the main targets of the coming attack would be the airfields, harbor facilities, and the shipping of Malta. But as the Germans wanted to use Malta after it was in their hands, the port capital city of Valletta was to be spared as much as possible. To draw out the British Hornets, Axis daylight bombing raids were to have such massive fighter support that not only would all objectives be destroyed, but so too would be any British fighters foolish enough to challenge the coming attacks, until they were all gone. This, combined with the planned massive mine lane around the island, would soon render the island nothing more than an albatross around the enemy's neck and no longer a launching pad to harass Italian shipping. It was a solid plan, 
The British were soon hit on all sides, would not be able to husband their fighters, nor launch raids against Italian ships. Kesselring would write, On the 10th of May, as the assault was to start in early April, I could regard the task as accomplished. Before Kesselring's orchestrated attack began, the island had already survived two years' worth of bombing by the Germans and Italians. But what came next dwarfed those 24 months of hell. During the first four months of the German offensive, some 6,700 tons of explosives were dropped on the island. And though the idea was for Valletta to be left mostly untouched, it was not to be. The harbor was avoided when possible, but the surrounding city was pulverized. By April 8th, the 2000th air raid was on its way, and by then, the very survival of the island was in serious question. The airstrips used by the British pilots took the same beating as the surrounding port city. German aerial photographs soon showed that those landing strips looked like World War I landscapes. By April 8th, there were few British fighters left. But like the Battle of Britain, there was no question that the remaining planes would take off, if they could, to challenge the well-protected German bombers. Yet, as the number of British fighters were reduced, their ability to protect the island's various ports was equally reduced. Over 10,000 homes were destroyed, food storage facilities were leveled, and of most immediate concern, numerous gun emplacements had been taken out. As for the British warships using Valletta to launch attacks, the Germans were able to quickly take out the port's cranes, wharves, and warehouses. The ships in port suffered as well, many damaged and then damaged again. To paraphrase an eyewitness on the cruiser Penelope, which was currently being repaired, the largest raid came just before 5 p.m. It was brilliantly done. JU-88s and 87s coming in ones and twos, they seemed to approach from every direction, but well-coordinated. At any one time, there were numerous bombs in the air falling around us. As one bomb struck nearby, the ship jumped several times. Fortunately, or rather foolishly, our gunners didn't duck when we did. They kept firing coolly, all the while switching from one target to the next, whatever seemed to offer the best chance for a hit. If not for these brave men, the damage the port sustained would have been much worse. One bomb hit between the ship and the jetty, which then ripped a large hole in our bottom. But again, the men of damage control were just as calm, at least outwardly, as the gunners. They rushed down into the bowels of the ship, yet many lower compartments were flooded. Only later did we find that cordite in the magazine had begun to smolder. But the rush of incoming water soaked everything before something much worse could have happened. As we began to clean up, another intense air raid started, with bombs falling all around us. But thankfully, there were no direct hits. That is, until the guns from the Y turret were hit. Those close-range guns disappeared from our view instantly. Only then did the casualty reports start coming in. Yet, as experienced and professional as the German bomber crews were, they soon got better with each raid. That, combined with a general reduction of viable targets, soon began to sway the offensive towards an apparent German victory. Penelope and her crew somehow survived more raids after the one described above and left port for Gibraltar. By then, the losses started to mount. Clearly, the anti-aircraft gunners on the island and the few remaining fighters could not protect the various ships. It was time for them to head to safer waters, relatively speaking. Days before the massive April air raid, the Carlisle and four other ships left for Alexandria. They were followed by the Aurora and the Avonvale. But as the others tried to flee days later, their fate would be different.
the submarines Pandora and P-36 were hit and sunk, and other vessels of the 10th Flotilla were heavily damaged. The destroyer Lance was directly hit while still in dry dock. Its fellow destroyer Gallant, having just been repaired, was hit and forced to beach. It was considered extremely lucky that the H-class destroyer Havoc made it out of harbor at all, yet it was so then damaged while on the way to Gibraltar that it had to run aground on the Tunisian coast. The crew was interned. The broken hull was now a feature of the coastline around Cape Bon in northwest Tunisia. The ever-growing list of lost ships soon reminded the Admiralty of their losses during the Battle for Crete. The Germans kept up their air assault. The next day, the tug Emily was sunk. The destroyer Kingston, already damaged a few days ago and under repair, was hit again and would be out of commission for some time. Then the vital minesweepers were targeted and soon started disappearing beneath the waves. First, there was the sunset, then another, then the jade, then the Abingdon. Now, no one could guarantee the channel opening would be kept clear of mines. Yet the remaining ships either had to leave port or would end their days being bottled up. Not until April 8th, the day of the first big air raid, did the cruiser Penelope sail for Gibraltar. Fortunately, she made it, but by then the ship had so many holes from bomb splinters that she was nicknamed the HMS Pepperpot. By the time the Penelope reached Gibraltar two days later on April 10th, she had fired off all of her anti-aircraft shells. By April 10th, the British had practically no minesweepers left. That day, the submarine Olympus, having picked up survivors from two other sunken submarines, itself hit a mine, losing the majority of those aboard. By April 12th, the fourth day of the overwhelming raids, the dockyard at Valletta was useless. The only things that still functioned were the air raid shelters and underground hospitals, chiseled out of the limestone rock formations. Beyond the destruction, there had been so much loss of life, military and civilian. Some 800 people were now dead, and another 30,000 were seriously wounded. Yet the survivors now had to endure severe food shortages, even greater than what the Londoners had done during the Battle of Britain. Malta's governor, General William Dobby, reported to London that even with the drastic food cuts in place, the island would still run out of food in early June. Fodder may last until late June. Meat was entirely gone, and this was in mid-April. Aviation fuel may last until mid-August, but this would not be the case if we had more fighters. But this clearly was not being seen as a blessing. There were only five weeks of diesel fuel left for the ships. Of course, the other question was, how long would the ships themselves last? Coal would not make it to the end of May. As for the ak-ak ammunition, there was enough for one and a half months. So, the million-dollar question was, when would the next convoy come? The short answer was, not soon enough. At that moment, Britain was focused, and indeed in the middle of supplying Stalin's Russia to keep that country in the war. The convoy ships needed were already en route to Murmansk, and could not simply be turned around. Stalin would have howled loud enough for even the Maltese to hear. The other question was of Malta-based fighters. The island needed food, supplies, but also a renewed defense, or the question of supplies would become moot. At least that aspect could be worked on. The U.S. aircraft carrier Wasp and the British carriers Eagle and Argus made their way close enough to Malta to launch their fighters, thus replacing the island's lost fighters. Of course, the people could not eat the planes, but it was all that could be done at the time. 
This increase in fighter support coincided with Kesselring's sending off some of his bombers back to Russia, as the vast wastes there ate up German planes. So by the end of May, Malta was relatively defendable. Though the question remained, what were the military personnel and Maltese people supposed to eat after their last foodstuffs ran out in two months? Beyond that, it didn't take Kesselring long to notice the lack of intervention of Axis convoys to North Africa by the British. Thus, Italian shipping picked up. Rommel's forces were resupplied and reinforced, which allowed the Desert Fox to surround Tobruk and push the 8th Army back to within 60 miles of Alexandria. Those who thought like Churchill the previous year seemed to be correct in their estimation. As went Malta, and it was barely hanging on now, so went North Africa, and apparently Egypt. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, after a long, long pause, it's time to do the um, Harry's giveaway. So, thank you for everyone who's entered. So, what I did was... uh, just grabbed a couple names, and I'll read out these names, and then we'll pare it down to two, and then we'll select our winner. Right, girls? Uh-huh. All right. So the names of the people who are in the final, we're going to do a short version of this, is uh, Alex Atterbury, Nicholas Walker, David Drummond, and David Huffman. So did I say that right? David, David Huffman. Sorry, David. I decided to alter your name. Okay, so Kiki, you pick a name. And Sophie, you pick a name. Those will be the finalists. So Kiki, go ahead and pick a name. Uh, uh, There we go. Okay, so one of the people in the final is David Huffman. So David, congratulations. And now Sophie, you pick a name. Mm. All right. David Drummond. So the two Davids are in the (laughs) final. Okay, so we're going to mix them up. Can't see them. La, 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 la. Here you mix them up because I think I got to memorize now. All right. All right. So the final winner is both of you pick a name. Both of you pick the same name, same piece of paper. All right. So the winner of the Harry's um, Golden Handle giveaway is David Huffman. So congratulations, David. And uh, just shoot me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and I will happily send this out to you. Congratulations, David Huffman. Everybody who entered, thank you very much, and uh, we'll probably be doing another one soon, um, probably August, just to thank all the members. I really do appreciate the support. It means a lot to me. So, And Sophie is so excited. She's <laughs> yawning with excitement. So again, thank you to everyone who's listened, and you'll, we'll be getting back to the Malta story soon. And um, th- after we do that, then we'll pick another subject. So anyway, again, thank you to everybody who entered, and congratulations to David, and I will see you soon with the next story of the Battle of Malta. Yay! Yay! Yay.